Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. We're continuing this morning our look at the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. We're at the third of the four servant songs. If you remember, all the way back, we began in Isaiah 42. We looked at that first servant song, and we saw that each of these songs, in a different way, reveals something to us about the coming servant that God is sending into the world, the coming Messiah. We learn something new about him in each song. But in addition to learning something new about him, we also receive a kind of invitation to enter into some aspect of his life in each song as well. So in the first song, in Isaiah 42, we received an invitation to enter into God's delight in Jesus Christ, into God's delight. In the second song, in Isaiah 49, last time, we saw an invitation to enter into Christ's sense of purpose. Remember, he saw himself as the polished arrow sent into the world by God with a mission, and we too are called to this mission as well. Well, this morning we're in Isaiah chapter 50. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 9. And in the third song, we will receive an invitation as well. In addition to learning some things about Jesus, we're also going to learn from him some things for ourselves and receive an invitation to enter into and to learn from his wisdom. Or to put it in another way, to learn from his learning. Because we'll be learning some lessons from the Lord's classroom. Three things we're going to learn this morning. First, that the Word of God teaches us how to sustain the weary. Secondly, that the Word of God sustains us to endure suffering with resolve. And lastly, that the Word of God teaches us how to be free of guilt. So let's take a look at our text, Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 through 9. And hear the words of the Lord. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear, to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment, the moth will eat them up. It's the word of the Lord. The word of God teaches us how to sustain the weary. When Jesus spoke to people during his earthly ministry, when the crowds gathered around him and they heard him teach, the most astonishing observation, the strangest thing about his teaching was the authority with which he spoke. Jesus, people said, He didn't teach like a scholar. He didn't teach like a scribe. 
He didn't teach like a guy who'd gone to school and studied stuff and, and wanted to put everything in its proper context and sort of uh, qualify every point that he made. When Jesus spoke, the words rang true deeply in a way that wasn't the case when you were just sitting in a classroom. That astonished people. But to be honest with you, it doesn't surprise me. Right? We look at Jesus, and, and Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the second person in the Trinity. Of course he spoke with authority. Of course he spoke with more authority than, than scholars and scribes and people like that, mere men. Naturally, Jesus spoke with authority. The thing that surprises me about Jesus isn't his authority. The thing that surprises me is that Jesus learned stuff. Jesus learned. Like he came to more understanding of things over time. You come across this in Luke's Gospel right at the end of chapter 2 of that story. We read these words, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus increased in wisdom. And I find that astonishing to contemplate. I don't know about you, but sometimes I look back on my life I look back at the choices that I made when I was younger, and I say to myself, if I'd only known then what I know now. Most of you have made good choices. You don't have any regrets. But occasionally I find myself wishing I'd made different choices in life. And I look back, and I kind of wish I could go back in time, you know, to, to around age 20 or so, and start living my life over again. I'm not going to ask you to, to confess to anything, but maybe some of you have also fantasized about what it might be like to be able to go back in time a little bit, turn back the clock. But you know the thing I don't want to do? I don't want to go back to, to 20 years old and not know what I know now. I, I want to lose a lot, but not knowledge. I don't want to go back in understanding. If I found myself in a situation where uh, because of injury or something like that, I had to relearn all the things I know now, I think I would just say, what's the point? That's just too much effort. I mean, as little as I've attained in life, I really don't want to go back. And yet Jesus, who is fully God, goes back in a way that is difficult for us to even imagine. Jesus somehow, in ways that I'm certainly not smart enough to quantify. Jesus empties himself. He limits himself somehow so that he becomes fully human and is in a situation where he can increase in knowledge, where he can, can increase in understanding. Theologians talk about this idea of kenosis, that, that emptying, and try to understand that a little bit better. And, and I've read some of that, and frankly, I, it's inconceivable to me what that must have been like. It's the reason why, and we've talked about this before, when you talk about the incarnation of Jesus, in, in our standards, we talk about that as part of his humiliation, which isn't flattering to you and me. Like for Jesus to become one of us is humiliating. It lowers him, which really isn't trying to put us down so much as raise him up, to, to show us just what, what a thing it is, what a distance is traveled. For Jesus to become a man, a human being like us. Remember when we talk about the incarnation of Jesus, we say Jesus is fully God and fully man. Uh, here's what we don't mean. We don't mean Jesus was a really good man who because of his goodness became a God. 
That's not the idea. But we also don't mean this. We don't mean Jesus was a God who decided to stop being a God and start being a man. That's not it either. It's something much more mysterious than that. Jesus becomes fully human without in any way not being fully God. And these two things remain true about him at the same time. And so, being fully human, he enters into the human experience, and part of that experience is being taught. We'll start with just a a few lines here. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. He's taught me, in other words, to speak like a teacher, an educated person, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. I think that last part is really a beautiful expression of this idea of the communion that Jesus had. Morning by morning, the Lord God, the Sovereign Lord, the Father, awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Jesus drew knowledge, drew wisdom from a source. And the source was the voice of God. His ear was filled with the voice of God speaking to him. And this is where his knowledge, his wisdom, his insight came from. This is a knowledge that's not closed to us. This is a voice we too can hear. It is the voice of God speaking his word. It is contained for us in Scripture. As Jesus had his ears filled with the voice of the Lord, we too can have our ears filled with that voice in his word. Because of that filling, because of that knowledge, the servant says that he could sustain with a word those who are weary. That's interesting. If you remember back when we were working through the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 4, we learn something about the humanity of Jesus. That because he was fully human, he is a high priest who can sympathize with us in our temptation, in our weakness. There's nothing about our experience that Jesus can't understand. He can sympathize deeply with us because he was fully human and is fully human. But it's interesting that he doesn't sustain the weary through sympathy. Jesus, as high priest, has a bottomless well of sympathy for us in our condition, but the way that he sustains is with a word. With a word. It's not just with fellow feeling. It's just just not, uh, you feel bad and I feel bad for you. Jesus sustains the weary with a word. He ministers not from sympathy, but from the word and the power of the word. I think there's a lesson here for us. A profound lesson. Because all too often when we seek to encourage those who are weak, who are suffering, we do it out of the the well of our own compassion and our own sympathy. We know what it's like to be brought low. And so we come alongside people sympathetic to their needs, sympathetic to their cause. And out of that resource that we have from our own experience, we seek to minister to those who need it. Which is good as far as it goes. It just doesn't go far enough. Jesus sustained the weary by the word, and we must sustain the weary by the word 
as well. We give of ourselves. We give our counsel. We give our wisdom. We share our good advice with people. And in doing that, we just don't do enough. Because what we should give them is not ourselves. We should give them the Word. What we should minister from is not our inner resources, because part of our calling as Christians is to recognize more and more that we possess no inner resources apart from Him. When we seek to dig deep within ourselves and minister to others, there's not enough inside of us to do that. And so we must do what Jesus did and give them the Word. Point them to the Word. Think about it this way. If Jesus, if Jesus, of all people, needed to be sustained by the Word, if Jesus, in order to minister to the weary, needed to give them the Word, what exempts us? Nothing. If He needed it, we need it so much more. We need it so much more. It is the Word of God that gives us the ability to sustain those who are weary and nothing else. If you're weary, if you're tired, and you come to me and you want to talk about it, I encourage you to do that. I would love to talk to you about it. But if all I do is sympathize, if all I do is say, yeah, I'm tired too, what I need to do is give you the Word. Point you to the Word. And that's what you need to do as well. It's the Word of God that has the power to sustain the weary. It's also the Word of God that sustains us to endure suffering with resolve. If we continue in the song, we read these words, The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. You begin to see in the third song the way this theme of suffering progresses. In the early songs, we talked about this servant as the suffering servant, but you might have struggled to understand why because he didn't seem to suffer so much. But now, the suffering becomes more vivid. And in fact, here, it's almost uncanny the ways in which the words of Isaiah prophesy and anticipate the sufferings of Christ. The details that you see here are striking. The lashes across the back, the, the pulling out of the beard, the spitting. These are all details you'll find in the Gospel accounts. It's interesting that in this situation, what sustains the servant, what sustains Jesus, again, personally, is the Word. He endures because the Lord God has opened my ear and the Lord helps me. The voice of the Lord is what is sustaining him, what is giving him the strength for this resolve. We've seen as we've studied Jesus that one of the things he was contemptuous of was the shame and the disgrace that the world could heap on him. The idea that he had to lower himself to become one of us, lower himself to go to the cross, sacrifices we might agonize over. Can I really afford to step down so much? Can I really empty myself in that way? 
Jesus doesn't agonize over these things. He has contempt for such considerations. The, the, the specter of disgrace, it doesn't worry him at all. He has resolve. These things are nothing in comparison to the pleasure and the joy of serving God. And yet, even despite that, when he talks about his resolve, he attributes it to a strength that comes, as it were, from outside of himself. Like from this voice of the Lord. It is the Lord God who helps him. Even Jesus needs the word of the Lord in his ear to sustain him. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be rebellious and I don't want to be backward. I don't want to be disgraced. Like Jesus, I would like to think that I set my face like a flint. You know, once I start plowing, I don't look back. That's the way I want to be. But that's not always the way that I am. And I've made plenty of resolves. I've determined plenty of times to turn over a new leaf and failed to do it. Because I need and you need the same source of strength outside of ourselves that Jesus drew upon. You need and I need the word of the Lord in our ears. The word of the Lord comes to us in Scripture. We have, if you were to chart churches on a spectrum, we have what's called a high view of Scripture. A high view of Scripture. What that means is that we see in the Bible, here, not, not like a magical text, not, not some sort of a totem. It's a book with words. And yet those words, despite the fact that they came through human authors who were fully human, who weren't taken over, but, but, but put their personality and their experience into the words, that those very words are the word of God. And they speak to us with a power and with an authority that is unparalleled and unrivaled by any other words at all. The word of God sustains us to endure suffering with resolve. We don't have anything inside of ourselves, any strength of character that will accomplish that. Like Jesus, in order to persevere, we must rely on the power of his word. And not just rely on it, but love it. The last thing in the world I want to do to you is preach scripture as a duty. You know, everybody now make a commitment that the first thing you will do in the morning is read for, let's say, four hours the Bible. And memorize a lot of what you read. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is love it. Love it. Because when you love, the rest follows. And if you don't love, the rest is a hardship. We should love Scripture as a source of strength, as Jesus loved it and was sustained by it. The Word of God sustains us to endure suffering with resolve. At the end of the song, there's this interesting turn. He says, I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. There's defiance in those words. There's defiance. When I was trying to think of a, a sermon title, 
The, the line that jumped out at me here that I really wanted to be the sermon title was, let us stand up together. Because it just sounds so communal, so good. Let us all stand up together and maybe hold hands, that sort of thing. Uh, but that's not what he's talking about here. This is not a let's stand up together uh, in, in sort of union. This is actually a challenge to an adversary. Someone's laying a charge. And let us stand up together is like saying, you know, come at me, bro. See what you can do. Because nothing you can do will persevere. Like, you can't land a punch on me because the one who vindicates me is near. So let's stand up. See what you can do. This is the kind of language that's being used at the end of the song. This is confidence. This is confidence. Not only is he willing to be determined to set his face like a flint, but he knows that nothing that comes against him can prevail. The Word of God teaches us how to be free. How to be free of fear, how to be free of intimidation, how to be free of guilt. You have to indulge me a little bit because you know I write crime novels and so stories like this appealed to me greatly. Uh, back in 1994, in Washington, D.C., there was a homicide detective named James Trainum who's investigating the murder of a man. He came to identify a suspect, a female suspect he believed was involved in the murder. And during the course of a long interrogation, eventually he was able to get the woman to confess to the crime and to name her accomplices. So he was able to close the case and lay charges not only against the woman, but also against the two men who had helped her perpetrate this murder. And as he prepared the case to go to the prosecutor, you, you lay your charges, but of course you have to continue investigating. As he did that, he uncovered evidence that absolutely, uncategorically proved the innocence of the woman who had confessed to the crime. And so he had to ask himself two questions. The first was, why would anybody confess to something that they hadn't done? And the second was, what did I do in this 16-hour interrogation to make someone confess to a crime that they hadn't committed? And the answers eventually ended up in a book uh, by James Trainum that came out this year. And it turns out his own experience led him to study this phenomenon of, of false confession. If you are a true crime fanatic, maybe you're familiar with this, because a lot of the popular true crime narratives recently have involved, in one way or another, false confessions. People who, uh, under duress, have confessed to things that they didn't do. It turns out that if you take a person, a particular kind of person, and you put them under pressure for long enough, and all of their attempts to, to assert their innocence, you shut down. That you can get that person to confess to something that they haven't done. Essentially to turn traitor against themselves. And I think that's a fascinating psychological phenomena. But have you ever asked yourself whether there's something similar going on in the larger world with us? Not that we're being beaten down in 16-hour interrogations, but we do live in a world that puts a lot of pressure on us to think a certain way about certain things. There are things God calls us to do that the world says, those are crimes, those are bad things. To do that makes you guilty. And a lot of us, under the pressure, find it very difficult not to buckle, not to see things the way we're being told to see them. And it's a struggle 
It's a struggle to maintain your innocence even when you know that it's true. When you find yourself under so much pressure. Standing against the world is hard. If everybody says that you're in the wrong, it's hard not to feel wrong. We oftentimes assume that people suffer because they deserve suffering. If bad things happen to you, it's probably because you've made bad choices or you're a bad sort of person. And we apply that logic to ourselves as well. Bad things happen to us. Maybe we're resilient at first, but eventually you start asking yourself, what kind of a person am I that things like this happen to me? I must be guilty. I must be bad. I must deserve it. Jesus, the suffering servant, suffers despite his innocence. Jesus is certainly a person against whom the world is turned. And yet, you don't sense in these words any doubt. Not only about his innocence, but about his ultimate vindication. I'm not just innocent, but I will be proven right in the end. I have no doubt about that. And yet, even Jesus, who knows like no one has ever known before, his rightness, his innocence, even Jesus, in that confidence, is sustained by the voice of the Lord, God himself, the Father in his ear, speaking to him. He draws the strength, the confidence in his vindication from that voice that he hears. No one can condemn him if God is with him, he says. God is the one who vindicates. The Lord will vindicate me. He will uphold my case. Who will contend with me? Who will lay a charge against me? Who is my adversary? When you hear those words, you should get this tingling sensation, the back of your neck, because you've heard somebody talking this way before. If you're familiar with your New Testament, with your book of Romans, it almost seems like Paul, he must have been flipping through a scroll of Isaiah when he was writing the end of Romans chapter 8. Because at the end of Romans chapter 8, he starts talking in very similar terms. And he indicates something. The word of the Lord vindicates Jesus, yes, but it doesn't just vindicate Jesus. The word of the Lord vindicates everyone who is in Jesus as well. And these are Paul's words. This is Romans 8, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. When we talk about guilt, more often than not, what we're talking about is an emotion. You feel guilty about something. And the only remedy that we have for that these days is you need to stop feeling that way. If you feel guilty, that's the problem. The solution is to feel differently. And you can pay people a lot of money to help you feel differently. But guilt isn't just an emotion. Guilt can also be a forensic reality. It is possible to be objectively guilty of something 
And in those moments, it is right to feel guilty about your actual objective guilt. We are guilty in the eyes of God. We are guilty. We've all done something, and you can't dodge the charge. You can't get off. A blind eye will not be turned to it. Objectively, forensically, as sinners, we're guilty. And that kind of guilt is almost impossible to alleviate. It's not just a feeling that you could feel differently about. No matter how you feel about it, it is real. It is real. We've all done something. And if the charge were laid against us, we would all be found guilty. But if Jesus takes the penalty, if Jesus takes the charge on himself, then the vindication that is his, the word of God, is yours as well. Then the sentence passed against you is not guilty as well. If Jesus takes the charge against you, you cannot be condemned. And your accuser doesn't stand a chance. The word of the Lord gives us freedom, not from the feeling of guilt, but from the reality of guilt. And gives us the kind of confidence in the face of our adversaries that Jesus possessed. When Jesus was threatened, Jesus said, he who will vindicate me is near. When we are threatened, when we are accused, we can say, the very same words. The Lord will vindicate us if we are in Christ. The reality for all of us is that the world wants to fill our ears with its own voice and drown out everything else. The voice of the world is constantly speaking in your ear, loud and emphatic. Telling you what is and what isn't. What is allowed and what's not. What's possible and what is impossible. But there remains the still small voice of the Word of God. Speaking. Speaking into our ears. Giving us a confidence. Giving us assurance. Giving us the strength to truly minister to those who are weary. This is the voice that sustained and vindicated Jesus. It is the voice that will sustain and vindicate you as well. If you want to draw close to Jesus, if you want to draw close to His example and be more like Him, then draw close to the Word of God. Jesus, of all people, depended for everything entirely on the Word of the Lord. And to be like Him, we should rely more and more on the word of the Lord ourselves. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.